0: If you would stand with me and turn in your Bibles to Judges chapter 8. We'll begin reading in verse number 4. It says, And Gideon came to Jordan and passed over. He and the three hundred men that were with him faint, yet pursuing them. So they had had this spectacular victory over the Midianites. 120,000 Midianites were dead, and Gideon is in pursuit with his army, pursuing the remaining Gideonites. Verse number 5 says, And he said unto the men of Succoth, Give, I pray you, loaves of bread unto the people that follow me, for they be faint. And I am pursuing after Zeba and Zalmunna, kings of Midian. And the princes of Succoth said, Are the hands of Zeba and Zalmunna now in thine hand, that we should give bread unto thine army?" And Gideon said, Therefore, when the Lord hath delivered Zeba and Zalmunna into mine hand, then I will tear your flesh with the thorns of the wilderness and with briars. And he went up thence to Penuel and spake unto them likewise. And the men of Penuel answered him as the men of Succoth had answered him. And he spake also unto the men of Penuel, saying, When I come again in peace, I will break down this tower. I'm going to tear down your city. Verse number ten. Now Zeba and Zelmuna were in Karkor, and their hosts with them, about fifteen thousand men. This is the remainder of the Midianite army, all that were left, of all the host of the children of the east, for there fell hundred and twenty thousand men that drew sword. And Gideon went up by the way of them that dwelt in tents on the east of Nobah and Jugbiha, and smote the hosts, for the host was secure. They thought they were. And when Zeba and Zalmunna fled, he pursued after them, and took the two kings of Midian, Zeba and Zalmunna, and thus the host. And Gideon the son of Joash returned from the battle before the sun was up, and caught a young man of the men of Succoth, and inquired of him, and he described unto him the princes of Succoth, and the elders thereof, even threescore and seventeen men. That's seventy-seven men. And he came unto the men of Succoth, and said, Behold, Zeba in Zalmunna, with whom ye did upbraid me, saying, Are the hands of Ziba and Zalmunna now in thine hand, that we should give bread unto thy men that are weary? And he took the elders of the city, and thorns of the wilderness, and briars, and with them he taught the men of Succoth. Yeah, it's intense. And he beat down the tower of Pinuel and slew the men of the city. Then said he unto Ziba, And Zalmunna, "'What manner of men were they whom ye slew at Tabor?' And they answered, "'As thou art, so were they. Each one resembled the children of a king.' And he said, "'They were my brethren, even the sons of my mother. As the Lord liveth, if ye had saved them alive, I would not slay you.' And he said unto Jether, his firstborn, up and slay them. But the youth drew not his sword, for he feared, because he was yet a youth. Then Zebah and Zalmunna said, Rise thou and fall upon us, for as the man is, so is his strength. And Gideon arose and slew Zebah, and Zalmunna and took away the ornaments that were on their camels' necks. Okay, so Midian is finished. Verse 22. Then the men of Israel said unto Gideon, Rule thou over us, both thou and thy son and thy son's son also, for thou hast delivered us from the hand of Midian. And Gideon said unto them, I will not rule over you, neither shall my son rule over you, the Lord shall rule over you. And Gideon said unto them, I would desire a request of you that ye would give me every man the earrings of his prey, for they had golden earrings because they were Ishmaelites. And they answered, We will willingly give them And they spread a garment, and did cast therein every man the earrings of his prey. And the weight of the golden earrings that he requested was a thousand seven hundred shekels of gold, beside ornaments and collars and purple raiment that was on the kings of Midian, beside the chains that were about their camels' necks. And Gideon made an ephod thereof, and put it in his city, even in Ophrah. And in all Israel went thither a whoring after it, which thing became a snare unto Gideon and to his house. Thus was Midian subdued before the children of Israel, so that they lifted up their heads no more. And the country was in quietness forty years in the days of Gideon. And Jerobal the son of Joash went, if you recall that's the name of Gideon, his other name, the son of Joash went and dwelt in his own house. And Gideon had threescore and ten sons of his body begotten, for he had many wives. And his concubine, that was in Shechem. She also bare him a son, whose name he called Abimelech. And Gideon the son of Joash died in a good old age, and was buried in the sepulchre of Joash, his father in Ophrah of the Abbaizrites. And it came to pass, as soon as Gideon was dead, that the children of Israel turned again, and went a-whoring after Balaam, and made Baalberith their god, And the children of Israel remembered not the Lord their God who had delivered them out of the hands of all their enemies on every side, neither showed the kindness to the house of Jeroboam, namely Gideon, according to all the goodness which he had showed unto Israel. I know it's lengthy, but it's the story and it will illustrate. It'll be the message and the illustration tonight of the truth we're going to look at. So we're going to deal with all of it. So I wanted to take the time to read it this evening. Thank you for standing. You may be seated. take just a moment and pray together before we get into the text tonight. Father, I am thankful for the time as always to be together, and I just pray that you would help us as we look at your word. Give us understanding, Lord, and speak to our hearts as only you can, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. If you recall from a few weeks ago, the nation of Israel found themselves again in this cycle that they always found themselves in the book of Judges. And they found themselves... In bondage and oppression as a direct result of their own idolatry. It was a brutal oppression. Every year, the Midianite hordes would sweep in from the east, and and they would sweep in like locusts, destroying everything in their path. And this led to brutal starvation and, and poverty in Israel. God came to a man named Gideon, who was really no one special, He was worshiping Baal like the rest of the Israelites and was cowering in fear when God came to him. And God gave clear instruction. But Gideon was hesitant. Gideon had to get to the place of humble faith in what God had made quite clear. He said, I will deliver Midian into your hands. I will give you the victory Before he could get to a place of obedience, he had to come to a place of faith in those promises. Once Gideon actually believed God would do what he said he was going to do, he engaged in a process of obedient steps that led to, against all odds, one of the most spectacular victories the world has ever known. 120,000 Midianites were were killed off. They, They killed off one another in a night of chaos and confusion And all this happened before Gideon and his army of 300 men. And this was obviously brought about by God Himself. God worked through the obedience of His servant Gideon to bring about this supernatural victory. The glory very obviously belonged to God because He was very obviously the victor. Gideon was simply obedient over a process of time obedient. And he got to experience the victory, but the Lord was the victor. So this is the context in which we begin chapter 8. This is the context. The victory has been given, and it was a spectacular victory. 120,000 Midianite soldiers were dead. Two Midianite princes were dead. The Midianites were sorely defeated beyond recovery. This, This horde that had invaded Israel, 135,000 soldiers was reduced to 15,000. They, they, were, they were injured beyond recovery. But we begin here in chapter 8 to see Gideon in a strange new light. He's almost unfamiliar to the Gideon just two chapters prior. After incredible victory, he throws himself... At a second military engagement in which God seemingly plays no part, 15,000 Midianites remained, and they were on the run. They escaped across the Jordan River to the east, and they're trying to get away from whatever had happened to them. They, They weren't even quite sure the night before, and they were running for their lives. And Gideon was following hard after. With his 300 men, he crossed the Jordan River, and his men are exhausted and hungry. So they've experienced days of anxiety leading up to what had happened the night before. Imagine getting ready to go into a battle, an army of 300 men into a battle against an army of 135,000, and you're still waiting on marching orders. Like God hasn't exactly told you how this is all gonna work out. You're getting ready to go into battle. I don't know about you, but I probably wouldn't be eating supper, okay? I would be... Anxious as you could possibly imagine. This has probably been their condition for days leading up to what had just happened. And they're coming out of this battle chasing after the Midianites, and they're exhausted, they're hungry, they're emotionally drained, they're they're not in their best state. And so that's that's how they entered this battle, and, and they're coming out of it exhausted. And yet here's Gideon pursuing the remaining few Midianites With frenzied determination, despite the hunger and exhaustion of his men. From here, two separate storylines start to unfold. And the theme of vengeance is prominent in both. Gideon and his men came to the city of Succoth. This was a city on the east side of the Jordan River that was inhabited by the descendants of of Gad. These would have been Gadites. So these were fellow Israelites with Gideon; these were his brothers. And Gideon said to the men of Succoth, "Please give some bread to these men who follow me. We've been in battle; We're, we're hungry. Give us some food." And the men of the men of Succoth reply reasonably. This is reasonable. Okay, they said, "Are they already in your hand?" They're referring to these kings that Gideon's pursuing. Ziba and Zalmunna, are they already in your hand that we should give you food? Okay, in other words, if you don't win this battle and you come back here, we're going to be on the wrong side of history. And the last quite a few years have shown that Midian's powerful. They come in here every year. And inevitably, if they come back to oppress us, we're going to have been guilty of feeding the enemy. Okay. They don't know who Gideon is. All of this happened in a relatively short period of time. They likely don't even know what happened the night before. All the men of Succoth know is 15,000 Midianites came tearing through our territory, and we don't know why. Who's this guy Gideon? He says he's chasing them. Where are the rest of the 120,000 that didn't come through here? There's a lot of unanswered questions here in their mind. And so this was a very reasonable answer. I'm not saying it was right, but it would have been very reasonable. But Gideon in hearing this response, takes it personally. And in a moment of passion, he said, when the Lord delivers Ziba and Zalmunna into my hand, I will come back here to tear your flesh with the thorns of the wilderness and with briars. Okay, that's intense. Um, that's, that's quite a retribution. So from Succoth, Gideon continued in his pursuit to a city called Penuel. Once again, this city would have been inhabited by Gadites, fellow Israelites. And he made the same request to the men of Penuel, and the men of Penuel responded in much the same way. And in his rage at their response, Gideon threatened to literally destroy their city on his return. So Zeb and Zalmunna had continued to flee, and they made camp in a place called Karkor, and they felt safe and secure. And so using surprise to his advantage, Gideon swiftly descended into battle uh, with the Midianites. And remember, they're coming out of all the chaos that had just happened the night before. They're thinking, what's going on again? They all scatter, but Gideon is able to capture the, the kings, Ziba and Zalmunna. Gideon's active involvement in attacking and chasing the enemy contrasts sharply with his and his men standing by while the Lord gave them the victory in their earlier encounter. This is very different, what's going on here. It's a far cry from chapter 7, verse 21, which says, And they stood every man in his place round about the camp, and all the host ran and cried and fled." So he pursued hard after Ziba and Zalmunna and captured them, essentially finishing the Midianite army. So Gideon began the journey home, dragging his captives behind him. And on his return, he captured a young man from the city of Succoth. He captures him He questions him, and under duress, the young man writes down and records the name of the 77 elders, or we might say leaders, of the town. So Gideon now has a list of names on which he can take out his revenge. And that's what he does. He approached Succoth and confronted the men of the town, and he said, look who I have. I have Zeba and Zalmunna. You taunted me, saying... Are Ziba and Zalmunna now in your hand? But they are. Look at what I have. You were wrong. Okay. So he's rubbing it in their face. And there's evidence this was a personal vendetta in the way Gideon spun their words to be a taunt. Nowhere is it indicated in verse 6 that the men of Succoth, or Penuel for that matter, were taunting Gideon. But that's, that's how Gideon took it, and he was there to even the score. And that's what he did. He brutalized the seventy-seven leaders of this town, he whipped them, likely tearing and scarring their flesh with briars and, and thorns. So Gideon continued his tirade and Pinuel. He did indeed tear down their town as promised, but he went a step further and slaughtered. He, he killed every man of the city. Gone are the diplomacy. And the leadership you see in Gideon in chapter 7 and the first part of chapter 8, it's it's gone. All you see is vengeance and violence. So Gideon turned his attention now to Zeba and Zalmunna. These are the kings of Midian. And the question he asked them is odd. He asked, where are the men you killed at Tabor? It's almost like he's taunting them. If, If you would just give them to me, these men you killed... Alive, I would spare your life. And the kings respond with flattery. They say, every one of them was like you. They look like a king. And what Gideon says next tells us so much. It's, it's so revealing. It reveals Gideon's motivation. Okay. This is all felt so personal because it was personal. Gideon had a personal vendetta against the Midianites, as you could expect. They had oppressed Israel, over the course of many years. And he's getting even. Gideon then dropped the bomb. He said, they are my brothers. And he said, if you'd spared their lives, I would spare yours. And with that, Gideon commanded his son to kill these kings, and he was afraid. So as if it wasn't already personal enough, the kings begin taunting Gideon, saying, you're weak, because you won't kill us yourself. And so he falls on them and and slaughters uh, these kings. The man who had just two chapters ago, the man who was just hiding in a wine press, afraid after being emboldened by spectacular victory is now settling personal vendettas by slaughtering kings. A lot has happened in a chapter. I honestly don't know if Gideon's actions up to this point were justified. Some of them very well may have been. It seems everyone got their just desserts, even if it was personal. The, the text simply doesn't give commentary. But I do want to point out what is noticeably absent in chapter eight. And that is the name Yahweh, okay? God's name. The, Yahweh is an unavoidably prominent figure in the preceding two chapters. And he's practically abs- absent from everything that has just transpired. The author, and by extension, God himself, go to great pains to, eliminate, to illuminate Yahweh's involvement in Gideon's victory in chapter 6 and chapter 7. Okay, so look at chapter 6, verse number 11. We have to turn back. It says, the angel of... The Lord, all caps Lord, this is God's proper name. The angel of Yahweh came to Gideon in chapter 6, verse 11. In chapter 6, verse 12, it says the angel said, Yahweh is with you. In chapter 6, verse 14, Yahweh Yahweh says, Deliver Israel, I have sent you. In chapter 6, verse 16, Yahweh said, I will be with you. Gideon asked for proof that he was talking to Yahweh in chapter 6, verses 17 through 24, and God gave it. Yahweh commanded Gideon directly to tear down the altar of Baal in chapter 6, verse 25. The spirit of Yahweh clothed Gideon in chapter 6, verse 34. Yahweh made clear his will through the fleece at the end of chapter 6. Yahweh told Gideon, His army was too large in chapter 7, verse number 2. And this point is key, okay? The reason Yahweh said the army was too large is if God had given the victory to Gideon with his original army, the glory would have gone to Gideon. Okay, but God wanted the glory to go to Himself. That was very important in this whole story. That God get the glory, but we're going to see in just a minute that ultimately, because of Gideon's actions here, the glory did not go to God. It went to Gideon, and the people tried to set him up as king, which was forbidden. Okay, so Yahweh said in chapter, or I'm sorry, chapter seven, verses three through eight, Yahweh twice gave instructions to Gideon about how to reduce his army. Yahweh said in chapter seven, verse seven, with the three hundred men. I will save you. In chapter 7, verses 9 through 14, Yahweh once again affirmed his will for Gideon. In chapter 7, verse 15, Gideon proclaimed to his men that Yahweh would be the one to deliver them. Chapter 7, verse 22 says that amongst the Midianites, the Lord, okay, again, all caps there, this is God's name, set every man's sword against his fellow. Gideon and his men stood by and watched, the Lord was the deliverer. Okay, God goes to great lengths to eliminate His own involvement in all of this, in chapter six and seven. Like it's abundantly clear who's doing the work. It's abundantly clear whose idea this was. It's abundantly clear who gave instruction. And the beauty of this is that God gets the glory. He's the one who did the delivering. He's the one who gave the victory. He's the one who brought about great change. And as such. He gets the glory. Furthermore, Gideon looks like a virtuous and heroic individual because he followed the instruction of God. This was was how this was all supposed to work out. The writer of Judges goes to great lengths to reveal the work of Yahweh in the preceding two chapters. However, and this is amazing to me, no such efforts are made in chapter 8. Aside from one, one brief reference to God's name from Gideon in verse 7 the name of God is not even mentioned in the entire chapter at all Gideon is acting on his own and it shows the account of Gideon's treatment of both the midianites and his own countrymen is disturbing gone is the humble obedient man to whom God delivered Gideon's humility and 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 his humility and caution completely disappear. He, he now throws diplomacy to the wind, demanding support with threats of retribution on those who fail to give it. And in marked contrast to, earlier, to the earlier phase of Gideon's career, there is no longer any reference to the Lord being involved in what he does. We now see a battle-hardened, zealous, bloodthirsty, cold man, drunk on his own success, no longer following God's instruction, but acting violently on his own passions and impulses. He's driven by vengeance and personal vendetta. What happens next is not so much work to decipher. It is clearly wrong. Gideon rejected, if in word only, an offer to become king. But in practice, he lived the life of a very weak king and ironically, he led his family in Israel back into the idolatry he led them out of. This is his end. The men of Israel came to Gideon and asked him to be their king and to establish his family as a dynasty. They said in verse 22, for thou hast delivered us from the hand of Midian. Now this this flies squarely in the face of what was supposed to happen. God, God's claim clear intention in chapter 7 verse 2 is, I want to get the glory for delivering Israel. If, if all one reads in is chapter 6 and 7, one would walk away with that impression. However, Gideon's independent, selfish actions in chapter 8 have, have changed that. Israel was not to ask for a king. God was to be their ruler. And Gideon had enough sense to deny his, their request in, in word. But the rest of his life seems to contradict his words. He did make one request of the children of Israel. He requested all of the golden earrings of the 120,000 Midianites who had been slaughtered and subsequently looted by the Israelites. Israel agreed. They spread a blanket out on the ground. They all came by and cast their earrings onto this this garment, And with the gold, Gideon made an ephod. The original ephod was created in Exodus chapter 28 as part of the tabernacle wares, and it was a breastplate that was to be worn by the high priest. It was used as an oracle, meaning it was used to discern the will of God, to receive revelation from God, the children of Israel would come to the high priest, and you know, they come to him with an issue or dispute, and the high priest would use the ephod to judge. That's why it's called the the breastplate of judgment in Exodus 28. This ephod was to be worn by the priest in the tabernacle for the purpose of judging the nation. This was its only sanctioned place and use. Everything else was cultic. It was idolatry. It was pagan. So Gideon made an ephod, revealing his true heart and intent. With his mouth, he said, God should be your ruler. But the power went to his head. He set himself up as a judge in Israel, a role that was supposed to be fulfilled by the high priest. So the text was pretty clear. This was horribly detrimental for the nation and for Gideon's family. The whole nation formed a new kind of idolatry surrounding this ephod, and the text uses very strong language, saying the whole nation whored after it. They were unfaithful to God in the most grotesque ways. And this ephod, this idol, completely ensnared It ruined Gideon's family. And that becomes really evident in the next chapter, in chapter 9. It ruined his family. As if creating an ephod through which he judged Israel was not enough, Gideon continued to behave like a king. Uh, He multiplied wives, a practice common among kings, but forbidden for Israel's rulers in Deuteronomy 17. The text just said Gideon had many. He enjoyed a concubine and Gideon even named his son Abimelech, which literally means my father is king. That's the meaning of the name. So it shows you what Gideon thought about himself. So Gideon died in a good old age, but his legacy was pathetic. Immediately upon his death, the nation returned to their Baal worship because that's what Gideon had led them back to. The one God used to deliver eventually led the nation back to bondage. Mankind has a tendency in moments of weakness and in moments of need, we've all been there to readily rely on God for deliverance. That was the state of Gideon in chapter six, in desperate need of someone to just come to the rescue. But after God acts as deliverer, we often fail to acknowledge him as such, and in pride and newfound success, often return to the bondage we were delivered from. Gideon's life ended in disgrace and failure because he failed to recognize and continue in what had led to his original success. He arrived at success through faith in what God said. And and he demonstrated this faith through obedient follow-through and reliance upon the Lord. However, in time, he became comfortable, autonomous, and self-sufficient, acting independent of God, which was Israel's perennial problem. They did this over and over again. To end in failure is to fail to recognize and continue in what led to success. It is a it is a detriment to our own spiritual health to fail to acknowledge the source of victory. We so often follow the cycle of Israel over the course of our lives. It is one thing to start well. It is another thing, and in my observation, it is a very difficult thing to end well after a lifetime of humble and faithful obedience. Gideon existed for 40 years in complacency. For 40 years, Israel whored after this, this ephod. And is, or Gideon, this man who had been used so greatly, have got to let it happen in, in his own home. For 40 years, he existed in complacency, a place of smug, uncritical satisfaction with himself and his own achievements, behaving like a king. 40 years of complacency is not the path to a good ending. We think of complacency as stagnation, but it is in reality a regression. It's a regression back to the place we started. How many people have Christian lives that, that look something like this, like on a line graph? Okay, they get started, and they go up like this, and then over a process of time, this is their Christian life. Back down to some place of, of indifference, and complacency. And they begin uh, God delivers them from the muck and mire of their sin, okay, and they have this trajectory that, that begins upward. They begin to experience not only victory over free uh, victory and freedom over their sin, but they begin to engage in Christian service. And, and then somewhere, somewhere up here, somewhere at the top, they begin to get comfortable and self-sufficient in the place God has brought them to. And eventually they end up right back where they started in bondage to the same idolatry. And maybe the idolatry takes a different form. Maybe it takes the form of comfort or laziness, pride or selfishness, but it's idolatry just the same and it makes them just as useless in God's service. We can all, I think we can all think of those whose war stories from the past resemble nothing of what God is doing in and through their lives in the today, right? By the same token, and this is the, the positive and encouraging part, there are those whose war stories of the past do match up with the lives they're living in the here and now. And those are the people we say, I want to be like one day. In Gideon's case, he started with humility and a great deal of fear, which drove him to faith in God. However, After experiencing success, the success, power, prestige, and influence went to his head, and he began using it for his own purposes, absent any involvement from God. We see this in leadership all the time. A Christian leader may start out in the pastorate humble, aware of his shortcomings, Intimidated by the responsibility and and yet cautiously optimistic, all of which drive him to the Lord, drive him to his knees, begging for wisdom and strength. However, after time and some God-given success, this same Christian leader may become proud and self-sufficient. He may become abusive to people both behind closed doors and from the pulpit. He may begin consolidating power and making unilateral decision without consent from others. And over time, what once was this shining example of God working in and through a man becomes a self-consumed, power-hungry, abusive leader who may build a massive organization through just sheer force of will, but who is reflecting no glory to God. We saw this in the life of Solomon, right? Initially, so overwhelmed with the responsibility of leading Israel, he said to God, I'm like a child. I don't know how to do this job. God, please, above all else, God says, I can g- I'll give you anything. He says, God, give me wisdom. Like, I, I can't do this without your help. That's how he began. However, the wealth and power eventually went to his head. He stashed wealth accumulated wives, and built a massive army, the last two of which were strictly forbidden for a king of Israel. And in the end, he was a shell of the man he started out as. I just finished reading in my, my daily devotions the book of Second Chronicles, and I find myself consistently disappointed in the kings of Judah. Hey, you have the northern, the northern kingdom of Israel who had no good kings, but Judah had some And it seems the pattern over and over again started out with, this king was up against a lot. He falls on his face before God and says, help me, God does something amazing. But then with few exceptions, it ends very poorly. And these men end in just a place of complacency. Okay, let's see if we can't, in the last few minutes here, broaden this out because most of us are not pastors and kings, right? (laughs) We're just people. A Christian young person Okay, so I'm talking to you guys over there. Maybe looking at the upcoming high school semester, overwhelmed with the thought of trying to be a light for Christ in a public school. Okay, that's intimidating. <clears throat> and this fear and humility may drive this young person to ask Jesus at the beginning of each day for help. Help me stand for Christ. Help me be kind. Help me be courageous. However, after a month or two goes by, it's no longer so intimidating. This young person has made some friends because kindness and grace always do. But having gained some level of popularity and no longer looking to Christ for help in the day to day, it becomes difficult to stand for Christ. It becomes difficult to use whatever influence has been gained for the glory of Christ. It becomes difficult to stand up for and show kindness to those who no one else will show kindness to. It becomes difficult to propose Bible truth in opposition to the world's truth. It becomes difficult to say no when tempted. And all of a sudden, what once looked like a promising young person being a light for Christ in a public school is now barely a glimmer of what could have been. A dad holding a child for the first time, maybe overwhelmed with the weight and responsibility that he holds in his hands. He, he begins begging God for wisdom. Wisdom to train the child. Wisdom to teach the child what is good and right. And he initially has some success. He, he, God gives him wisdom and he raises a obedient, an obedient, happy toddler. But as life wears on, and the child is entering junior high, the responsibility never seems so weight, no longer seems so weighty, although the child likely needs a father more than he ever has before. The draw of Netflix in the evenings becomes so much more enticing than any weight or responsibility of spending time with a 13-year-old. And so what started out as a man with so much potential to be a good father ends as a man who is complacent and entertained and a teenager's neglected. A good ending, I'm going to say a good life, isn't made at the end. It's made in the middle. It's made in those day-to-day moments that follow a good start. Who is my God today on September 24th, 2023? Who got me to this point? Who set me on this path? Who does he say that I am? What does he say my purpose is today? What instruction has he given me for living life today? All of us, all of us are writing an ending because we're all dying. Whether you be 13 or 80, we're all writing an ending because we're all coming to the end. I don't know about you, but I like happy endings. This isn't one, but I like happy endings. What kind of ending are you writing by the life you're living today? Because it's being written today. We said of the life of Gideon, to end in failure is to fail to recognize and continue in what led to original success. And if that is true, this is also true. And this is said positively. To end in success, if that's what we're going for, is to recognize and continue in what led to success originally. Let us all consider what kind of ending am I writing by the life I'm living today. All right, as we stand together, if you would stand with me.